Section 1 of The Descent of Man, Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in July 2010. The Descent of Man, Part 1 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 1 The Evidence of the Descent of Man from Some Lower Form. Part 1. Nature of the evidence bearing on the origin of man. Homologous structures in man and the lower animals. Miscellaneous points of correspondence. Development. Rudimentary structures, muscles, sense organs, hair, bones, reproductive organs, etc. The bearing of these three great classes of facts on the origin of man. He who wishes to decide whether man is the modified descendant of some pre-existing form would probably first inquire whether man varies, however slightly, in bodily structure and in mental faculties, and, if so, whether the variations are transmitted to his offspring in accordance with the laws which prevail with the lower animals. Again, are the variations the result, as far as our ignorance permits us to judge, of the same general causes, and are they governed by the same general laws as in the case of other organisms, for instance, by correlation, the inherited effects of use and disuse, etc.? Is man subject to similar malconformations, the result of arrested development, of reduplication of parts, etc., and does he display in any of his anomalies reversion to some former and ancient type of structure? It might also naturally be inquired whether man, like so many other animals, has given rise to varieties and sub-races, differing but slightly from each other, or to races differing so much that they must be classed as doubtful species? How are such races distributed over the world, and how, when crossed, do they react on each other in the first and succeeding generations, and so with many other points? The inquirer would next come to the important point whether man tends to increase at so rapid a rate as to lead to occasional severe struggles for existence, and consequently to beneficial variations whether in body or mind being preserved and injurious ones eliminated. Do the races or species of men, whichever term may be applied, encroach on and replace one another, so that some finally become extinct? We shall see that all these questions, as indeed is obvious in respect to most of them, must be answered in the affirmative, in the same manner as with the lower animals. But the several considerations just referred to may be conveniently deferred for a time, and we will first see how far the bodily structure of man shows traces, more or less plain, of his descent from some lower form. In succeeding chapters, the mental powers of man, in comparison with those of the lower animals, will be considered. The bodily structure of man. It is notorious that man is constructed on the same general type or model as other mammals. All the bones in his skeleton can be compared with corresponding bones in a monkey, bat, or seal. So it is with his muscles, nerves, blood vessels, and internal viscera. 
the brain the most important of all the organs follows the same law as shown by huxley and other anatomists bischoff who is a hostile witness admits that every chief fissure and fold in the brain of man has its analogy in that of the orang but he adds that at no period of development do their brains perfectly agree nor could perfect agreement be expected for otherwise their mental powers would have been the same footnote großhirnwindungen des menschen eighteen sixty eight page ninety six the conclusions of this author as well as those of gratiolet and ab concerning the brain will be discussed by professor huxley in the appendix alluded to in the preface to this edition End footnote. valpian remarks les différences réelles qui existent entre l'encéphale de l'homme et celui des singes supérieurs sont bien minimes il ne faut pas se faire d'illusions à cet égard l'homme est bien plus près des singes anthropomorphes par le caractère anatomique de son cerveau que ceux-ci ne le sont non seulement des autres mammifères mais même de certains quadrumanes des guenons et des macaques but it would be superfluous here to give further details on the correspondence between man and the higher mammals in the structure of the brain and all other parts of the body it may however be worth while to specify a few points not directly or obviously connected with structure by which this correspondence or relationship is well shown man is liable to receive from the lower animals and to communicate to them certain diseases as hydrophobia variola the glanders syphilis cholera herpes etc and this fact proves the close similarity of their tissues and blood both in minute structure and composition far more plainly than does the comparison under the best microscope or by the aid of the best chemical analysis footnote a reviewer has criticized in british quarterly review october first eighteen seventy one page four hundred seventy two what i have here said with much severity and contempt but as i do not use the term identity i cannot see that i am greatly in error there appears to me a strong analogy between the same infection or contagion producing the same result or one closely similar in two distinct animals and the testing of two distinct fluids by the same chemical reagent End footnote. monkeys are liable to many of the same non-contagious diseases as we are thus renga who carefully observed for a long time the cebus azarei in its native land found it liable to catarrh with the usual symptoms and which when often recurrent led to consumption these monkeys suffered also from apoplexy inflammation of the bowels and cataract in the eye the younger ones when shedding their milk teeth often died from fever medicines produced the same effect on them as on us many kinds of monkeys have a strong taste for tea coffee and spirituous liquors they will also, as I have myself seen, smoke tobacco with pleasure. Footnote. The same tastes are common to some animals much lower in the scale. Mr. A. Nichols informs me that he kept in Queensland, in Australia, three individuals of the Phaseolactus cenarius, and that, without having been taught in any way, they acquired a strong taste for rum and for smoking tobacco. End footnote. 
Brehm asserts that the natives of northeastern Africa catch the wild baboons by exposing vessels with strong beer, by which they are made drunk. He has seen some of these animals, which he kept in confinement, in this state, and he gives a laughable account of their behavior and strange grimaces. On the following morning they were very cross and dismal. They held their aching heads with both hands, and wore a most pitiable expression. When beer or wine was offered them, they turned away with disgust, but relished the juice of lemons. An American monkey, an Attilis, after getting drunk on brandy, would never touch it again, and thus was wiser than many men. These trifling facts prove how similar the nerves of taste must be in monkeys and men, and how similarly their whole nervous system is affected. Man is infested with internal parasites, sometimes causing fatal effects, and is plagued by external parasites, all of which belong to the same genera or families as those infesting other mammals, and in the case of scabies to the same species. Man is subject, like other mammals, birds, and even insects, to that mysterious law which causes certain normal processes, such as gestation, as well as the maturation and duration of various diseases, to follow lunar periods. His wounds are repaired by the same process of healing, and the stumps left after the amputation of his limbs, especially during an early embryonic period, occasionally possess some power of regeneration, as in the lowest animals. Footnote. I have given the evidence on this head in my Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, Volume 2, page 15, and more could be added. End footnote. The whole process of that most important function, the reproduction of the species, is strikingly the same in all mammals, from the first act of courtship by the male to the birth and nurturing of the young. Footnote. Mares e diversis generibus quadrumanorum sine dubio dignoscunt feminas humanas amaribus. Primum, credo, odoratu, postea, aspectu. Mr. Jowett, quidiu in hortis zoologicis bestiariis, medicus animalium erat, vir in rebus observandis cautus et sagax, hoc mihi certissime probavit, et curatores eustem loci et alii e ministris confirmaverunt. Sir Andrew Smith et Berem notabant idem in Cinocephalo. Illustrissimus cuvie, etiam narrat multa de hac re, qua ut opinor, nihil turpius protest indicari inter omnia hominibus et quadrumanis communia. Narrat enim cinocephalum quendam in furorem incidere aspectu feminarum aliquarem, sed nequaquam accendi tanto furore ab omnibus. Semper eligebat juniores, et dignoscebat in turba, et advocabat voce gestuque. End footnote. Monkeys are born in almost as helpless a condition as our own infants, and in certain genera the young differ fully as much in appearance from the adults as do our children from their full-grown parents. Footnote. This remark is made with respect to Cynocephalus and the anthropomorphous apes, by Geoffrey Saint-Hilaire and F. Cuvier, Histoire naturelle de mammifères, Book One, eighteen twenty four.
End footnote. It has been urged by some writers as an important distinction that with man the young arrive at maturity at a much later age than with any other animal, but if we look to the races of mankind which inhabit tropical countries the difference is not great, for the orang is believed not to be adult till the age of from 10 to 15 years. Man differs from woman in size, bodily strength, hairiness, etc., as well as in mind, in the same manner as do the two sexes of many mammals so that the correspondence in general structure, in the minute structure of the tissues, in chemical composition and in constitution, between men and the higher animals, especially the anthropomorphous apes, is extremely close. Embryonic Development Figure 1 shows a human embryo from Ecker and a dog embryo from Bischoff. Labeled in each are A, forebrain, cerebral hemispheres, etc., b, midbrain, corpora quadrigemina, c, hindbrain, cerebellum, medulla oblongata, d, i, e, ear, f, first visceral arch, g, second visceral arch, h, vertebral columns and muscles in process of development, i, anterior extremities, K. Posterior extremities. L. Tail or oscoccyx. Man is developed from an ovule about the 125th of an inch in diameter, which differs in no respect from the ovules of other animals. The embryo itself at a very early period can hardly be distinguished from that of other members of the vertebrate kingdom. At this period, the arteries run in arch-like branches, as if to carry the blood to branchiae, which are not present in the higher vertebrata, though the slits on the sides of the neck still remain, cf and g in figure 1, marking their former position. At a somewhat later period, when the extremities are developed, quote, the feet of lizards and mammals, end quote, as the illustrious von Beer remarks, quote, the wings and feet of birds, no less than the hands and feet of man, all arise from the same fundamental form. End quote. It is, says Professor Huxley, quote, quite in the later stages of development that the young human being presents marked differences from the young ape, while the latter departs as much from the dog in its developments as the man does. Startling as this last assertion may appear to be, it is demonstrably true. End quote. As some of my readers may never have seen a drawing of an embryo, I have given one of man and another of a dog at about the same early stage of development, carefully copied from two works of undoubted accuracy. Footnote. The human embryo, figure 1, is from Ecker, Iconis Physiologicae, 1851-1859, to table 30, figure 2. This embryo was ten lines in length, so that the drawing is much magnified. The embryo of the dog is from Bischoff, Entwicklungsgeschichte des Hundeeies, 1845, Table 11, Figure 42b. This drawing is five times magnified, the embryo being 25 days old. The internal viscera have been omitted, and the uterine appendages in both drawings removed. I was directed to these figures by Professor Huxley, from whose work Man's Place in Nature, 
the idea of giving them was taken. Heckel has also given analogous drawings in his Schöpfungsgeschichte. End footnote. After the foregoing statements made by such high authorities, it would be superfluous on my part to give a number of borrowed details, showing that the embryo of man closely resembles that of other mammals. It may, however, be added that the human embryo likewise resembles certain low forms when adult in various points of structure. For instance, the heart at first exists as a simple pulsating vessel, the excreta are voided through a cloacal passage, and the os coccyx projects like a true tail, quote, extending considerably beyond the rudimentary legs. End quote. In the embryos of all air-breathing vertebrates, certain glands, called the corpora wolfiana, correspond with and act like the kidneys of mature fishes. Even at a later embryonic period, some striking resemblances between men and the lower animals may be observed. Bischoff says that, quote, the convolutions of the brain in a human fetus at the end of the seventh month reach about the same stage of development as in a baboon when adult, end quote. The great toe, as Professor Owen remarks, quote, which forms the fulcrum when standing or walking, is perhaps the most characteristic peculiarity in the human structure, end quote. But in an embryo, about an inch in length, Professor Wyman found, quote, that the great toe was shorter than the others, and, instead of being parallel to them, projected at an angle from the side of the foot, thus corresponding with the permanent condition of this part in the quadrumana, end quote. I will conclude with a quotation from Huxley, who after asking, does man originate in a different way from a dog, bird, frog, or fish, says, quote, The reply is not doubtful for a moment. Without question, the mode of origin and the early stages of the development of man are identical with those of the animals immediately below him in the scale. Without a doubt in these respects, he is far nearer to apes than the apes are to the dog. End quote rudiments this subject though not intrinsically more important than the two last will for several reasons be treated here more fully footnote i had written a rough copy of this chapter before reading a valuable paper caratteri rudimentali in ordine al origine del uomo annuario della società de naturalisti modena 1867 page 81 by g canestrini to which paper I am considerably indebted. Heckel has given admirable discussions on this whole subject under the title of Distileology in his Generelle Morphologie and Schöpfungsgeschichte. End footnote. Not one of the higher animals can be named which does not bear some part in a rudimentary condition, and man forms no exception to the rule. Rudimentary organs must be distinguished from those that are nascent, though in some cases the distinction is not easy. The former are either absolutely useless, such as the mammae of male quadrupeds, or the incisor teeth of ruminants which never cut through the gums, or they are of such slight service to their present possessors that we can hardly suppose that they were developed under the conditions which now exist. Organs in this latter stage are not strictly rudimentary, but they are tending in this direction. 
nascent organs on the other hand though not fully developed are of high service to their possessors and are capable of further development rudimentary organs are eminently variable and this is partly intelligible as they are useless or nearly useless and consequently are no longer subjected to natural selection they often become wholly suppressed when this occurs they are nevertheless liable to occasional reappearance through reversion a circumstance well worthy of attention the chief agents in causing organs to become rudimentary seem to have been disuse at that period of life when the organ is chiefly used and this is generally during maturity and also inheritance at a corresponding period of life the term disuse does not relate merely to the lessened action of muscles but includes a diminished flow of blood to a part or organ from being subjected to fewer alterations of pressure or from becoming in any way less habitually active rudiments however may occur in one sex of those parts which are normally present in the other sex and such rudiments as we shall hereafter see have often originated in a way distinct from those here referred to in some cases organs have been reduced by means of natural selection from having become injurious to the species under changed habits of life the process of reduction is probably often aided through the two principles of compensation and economy of growth but the later stages of reduction after disuse has done all that can fairly be attributed to it and when the saving to be effected by the economy of growth would be very small are difficult to understand the final and complete suppression of a part already useless and much reduced in size in which case neither compensation nor economy can come into play is perhaps intelligible by the aid of the hypothesis of pangenesis but as the whole subject of rudimentary organs has been discussed and illustrated in my former works i shall here say no more on this head rudiments of various muscles have been observed in many parts of the human body and not a few muscles which are regularly present in some of the lower animals can occasionally be detected in man in a greatly reduced condition footnote for instance m richard annal des sciences naturelles third series zoology eighteen fifty two volume eighteen page thirteen describes and figures rudiments of what he calls the muscle pédieux de la main which he says is sometimes infiniment petit another muscle called le tibial posterieur is generally quite absent in the hand but appears from time to time in a more or less rudimentary condition End footnote. Everyone must have noticed the power which many animals, especially horses, possess of moving or twitching their skin, and this is affected by the paniculus carnosus. Remnants of this muscle in an efficient state are found in various parts of our bodies, for instance, the muscle on the forehead, by which the eyebrows are raised. The platysma myoides, which is well developed on the neck, belongs to this system. Professor Turner of Edinburgh has occasionally detected, as he informs me, muscular fasciculi in five different situations, namely in the axillae, near the scalpillae, etc., all of which must be referred to the system of the paniculus. 
he has also shown that the musculus sternalis or sternalis brutorum which is not an extension of the rectus abdominalis but is closely allied to the paniculus occurred in the proportion of about three percent in upwards of six hundred bodies he adds that this muscle affords quote, an excellent illustration of the statement that occasional and rudimentary structures are especially liable to variation in arrangement end quote some few persons have the power of contracting the superficial muscles on their scalps and these muscles are in a variable and partially rudimentary condition monsieur a de candol has communicated to me a curious instance of the long-continued persistence or inheritance of this power as well as of its unusual development he knows a family in which one member the present head of the family could when a youth pitch several heavy books from his head by the movement of the scalp alone and he won wagers by performing this feat his father uncle grandfather and his three children possessed the same power to the same unusual degree this family became divided eight generations ago into two branches so that the head of the above-mentioned branch is cousin in the seventh degree to the head of the other branch this distant cousin resides in another part of france and on being asked whether he possessed the same faculty immediately exhibited his power this case offers a good illustration how persistent may be the transmission of an absolutely useless faculty probably derived from our remote semi-human progenitors since many monkeys have and frequently use the power of largely moving their scalps up and down the extrinsic muscles which serve to move the external ear and the intrinsic muscles which move the different parts are in a rudimentary condition in man and they all belong to the system of the paniculus. They are also variable in development, or at least in function. I have seen one man who could draw the whole ear forwards, other men can draw it upwards, another who could draw it backwards, to the same effect. And from what one of these persons told me, it is probable that most of us, by often touching our ears, and thus directing our attention towards them, could recover some power of movement by repeated trials the power of erecting and directing the shell of the ears to the various points of the compass is no doubt of the highest service to many animals as they thus perceive the direction of danger but i have never heard on sufficient evidence of a man who possessed this power the one which might be of use to him the whole external shell may be considered a rudiment together with the various folds and prominences helix and anti-helix tragus and antitragus etc which in the lower animals strengthen and support the ear when erect without adding much to its weight some authors however suppose that the cartilage of the shell serves to transmit vibrations to the acoustic nerve but mr toynbee after collecting all the known evidence on this head concludes that the external shell is of no distinct use footnote the diseases of the ear by J. Toynbee, F.R.S., 1860, page 12. A distinguished physiologist, Professor Pryor, informs me that he had lately been experimenting on the function of the shell of the ear, and has come to nearly the same conclusion as that given here. And footnote. 
the ears of the chimpanzee and orang are curiously like those of man and the proper muscles are likewise but very slightly developed i am also assured by the keepers in the zoological gardens that these animals never move or erect their ears so that they are in an equally rudimentary condition with those of man as far as function is concerned why these animals as well as the progenitors of man should have lost the power of erecting their ears we cannot say it may be though i am not satisfied with this view that owing to their arboreal habits and great strength they were but little exposed to danger and so during a lengthened period moved their ears but little and thus gradually lost the power of moving them this would be a parallel case with that of those large and heavy birds which from inhabiting oceanic islands have not been exposed to the attacks of beasts of prey and have consequently lost the power of using their wings for flight the inability to move the ears in man and several apes is however partly compensated by the freedom with which they can move the head in a horizontal plane so as to catch sounds from all directions it has been asserted that the ear of man alone possesses a lobule but quote, a rudiment of it is found in the gorilla end quote. and as i hear from professor pryor it is not rarely absent in the negro End of section 1